MD podcast. We've been doing a, sort of a series here on the uh, response to the coronavirus, the COVID-19 virus. At Organic MD, we're really all about natural therapies, things that are safe and things that work. And there are a lot of things that they never taught me in medical school that do work, especially dealing with a virus like the coronavirus. And But one of the things, you know, there's, there's always a mind-body connection. And Carlisle and I were talking and he mentioned some work uh, that really was kind of based on the idea that what you're feeling right now is probably grief. And so, you know, we're all scrambled by everything that's been happening. I mean, the world is scrambled, life is scrambled, work is scrambled, our health is on the verge of being scrambled. Um, but our minds, if we let our minds get scrambled as well, it's just going to make, there's no problem that's going on that you can't make it worse by being stressed and fearful. So I'm Carlisle's, this is his area of expertise. I'm going to let him take over here and just say something about how you keep your feet on the ground and keep yourself sane in these times. You there, Carlisle? I am. Uh, thank you, Dr. Miller. So uh, yeah, this there was an article in Harvard Business Review of all places uh, of, gosh, I think it's now almost two weeks ago, and a friend of mine had shared it on Facebook. And partly the article was sort of exploring this notion of that feeling you might be having is grief. Uh, the, the author of the article, I think, was on a Zoom call with a number of other colleagues, and everyone was kind of freaking out, and some people were really sad and struggling with different feelings, and someone had mentioned grief on the, on the call, and it just struck him, oh, yeah, of course, you know, we're, everyone's potentially kind of going through this situation, and he reached out to a gentleman named David Kessler. David Kessler uh, uh, was, a, I think, initially an assistant to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and then really worked with her for uh, not only while she was alive, but also after her death to help her uh, su support the work that she was doing around grief and grief theory. She is best known for the five stages of grief that she created at a time in um, certainly a Western culture in which grief, especially grief as, as acknowledged within the medical system and the uh, sort of therapeutic models was something that was not considered or often wasn't taken into account when working with someone. And she was really one of the first people to not only create a model, but also demonstrate again and again that this could be an aspect of the symptoms you might be seeing from somebody who's coming in for therapy. And um, uh, so David over the years has helped support her in that work. Uh, when I, uh, I do run a lot of, uh, or I have run a lot of bereavement groups and done bereavement support for people uh, in the last 25 years. And although uh, the, the stages model is certainly something that everybody knows, I tend to shy away from that model, partially because what what has happened, which always seems to happen in the Western system, the Western medical system, is we all love stages that gets to a goal. Like, so everyone, you know, the, the stages model ends with acceptance. 
And so it starts with denial and ends, ends with acceptance. And there are these sort of five stages in between. And so people like, oh, I'm in the third stage now, and then I'll be at the fourth stage. And then the fifth stage, I'll be at acceptance and it's all over and I never have to grieve again. And I think what I've just seen over lots of years is that it doesn't really work that way. And that actually grief is much more cyclical in the, in the sense that we have an experience of loss or change or transition. And oftentimes the change that's happening, we don't pay attention to, or it's happening very slowly, like the seasons that are changing around us. So if you live in a place, well, I live in Los Angeles, so the seasons are a little less ext extreme. I mean, we have rain and cold in the winter as opposed to snow, but we still have some seasons, but these things happen gradually over a year. And so oftentimes we sort of pay attention to them, but also a lot of things are changing around us and we, we don't necessarily pay attention. However, when we have a change that's sudden or the, that time frame is much shorter. So in January, we were all doing our thing. And by March, we're being asked to not leave the home and everyone's wearing masks and gloves and the, the stores are looking like uh, they've been gutted and we have a very, very quick shift. And that for humans and for many beings actually on the earth, that sort of sudden change is hard to adapt to as well because I think at least in the United States and in, and in Western culture, we don't particularly explore or study or look at grief and how we grieve, how we relate to change and death. Uh, it's just not something that is taught in school, for example. Uh, the, the sort of joke I always say is that I learned more in, in grade school about sex and sexual diseases than I learned about my emotions and how to grieve. I did nothing about grief and emotions, actually, very little. And so th there's, this, there's this experience, I think, that, that people are really having in which this change is imposed on us and we have a variety of responses to it. There's a lot of people who are like, ah, forget it. I don't care. I'm going to go out anyway. I don't care if I get sick or I'm immune or whatever. This sort of defiant denial or pushback, I think. And I've seen that for years working in hospice of my loved one is dying, but I am no way am I accepting it. Uh, I'm going to push against this. This isn't happening. They're going to get better. And I think it's the same thing you see in those reactions of, nope, nope, it's not happening. Everything's going to be fine. And, and, uh, you know, and you know, put my head in the sand, it's all going to go away. I'm immune or whatever. And, and then you also have people getting really depressed, feeling a lot of despair because it's not just, oh, I'm sick or, oh, I might get sick, but it's also, uh, my job is stopping. Is it going to stop? Oh my God, it has stopped. Where's the income going to come in? Am I going to be kicked out of my home? Uh, I'm getting, oh, now I'm saying that I'm, I have permission to stay in my home. Like there's all these things happening around people not getting evicted, but there are still um, landlords who are tricking people and doing funky stuff. You know, it's, it's a mess. Everything is a mess. And this article in the Harvard Business Review is really looking at anticipatory grief. So, that is a kind of grief in which 
you see a change coming, but you don't know the outcome. Similarly to if I know that my loved one is dying and they're dying from cancer, but I don't know, is that going to be a month from now? Um, sorry for the sirens going on in the background. It's appropriate. Uh, it's obviously a fire. Yeah, right. And time the sirens. Um, so, you know, there's this, I see this thing happening, but I don't know how I'm going to be on the other side of it. And sometimes, <clears throat> I mean, for years, uh, <clears throat> a, a common statement from family members in hospice and when I worked in hospitals was, uh, it's the waiting I can't stand. Even the person who might be actively dying, I don't mind death. I'm not worried about it's everything up into that point. Like, cause I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know how I'm going to make it through. And I, it's all these questions and, and that's, that can be a difficult place to be in. It feels extremely ungrounding. And then if we're, as we have been isolated, or maybe if, if I don't have a, if I don't have family around and it's just me living at home by myself for days on end where I don't talk to people or I might wave or say nod to someone on the street if I'm taking a walk, but we're all asked to be six feet away and not have conversations and, or at least have distance. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's very, very ungrounding. So, you know, one of the things that I've found is doing any kind of mindfulness or meditation practice, I think regardless of whatever spiritual tradition you're connected to, uh, even uh, Christianity and Islam and Hindu tradition uh, and even agnostic traditions, even if you're an atheist, uh, there's some aspect or form of reflection and or meditation that are in those traditions. So even though when I say meditation and mindfulness, people might think solely of Buddhism, uh, Buddhism is you know not the only tradition that does this, but still being able to every day, even for a few minutes to find a spot in wherever you are, to sit quietly, to follow your breath, to just calm your nervous system down, especially if you're struggling with a lot of anxiety and a lot of panic is coming up. Um, and if as you are sitting and just following your breath coming in and out, if suddenly a lot of thoughts and worries and stuff comes in, all you literally have to do is just say, oh yeah, okay, thinking, worry, okay, I'm acknowledging it's there, but I'm just gonna go back to my breath, just following my breath coming in and coming out. And the thing is, is that we now have over the last 10 years or so, 10 or 15 years, there has been uh, incredible amounts of research done, uh, scientific studies, working with meditators and showing how even doing simple meditation, following your breath and kind of calming that system down, they can see a physiological somatic change occur in a person's body. So this isn't, you know, uh, new agey frou-frou stuff. This is hard science that has shown and demonstrated that doing these kind of practices are really important. Yeah. Um, uh, were you going to say something? Dr. Well, no, I was just, I was, I was just going to kind of throw in that in, in the studies that have been done, it works even if you don't do it for that long. You don't have to spend an hour sitting in a chair breathing. Um, even five minutes right. produces measurable changes, positive changes. 
Exactly. Especially if you do it every day in some fashion. Um, but also, too, I think what's important is for us to, excuse me, but also, too, what I think is important is for us to respect grief. So this is an experience of grief. We are in a change that for some maybe aren't isn't as if isn't having much impact but for many is profoundly impactful um, i was reading another article people are really struggling right now creating ritual in this time of isolation and the the author the, the reporter was interviewing several people and one of them was having a hard time because their loved one had died from the coronavirus but they weren't able to be with them when they died because they were in isolation at the hospital and this family they did try to get together and do a memorial but everyone had to sit six feet apart and it was just they said it was the body wasn't there because it was in quarantine still even though it was dead it was in the morgue it, it was just crazy and so how do i do what do i do with all that and it's essential for us just to acknowledge that it's this is actually our birthright. Grieving and grief and, and adapting and changing and shifting with these changes is our birthright. It isn't something alien or something to avoid. And so even also being able to acknowledge that you might be going through a bit of a grieving process, to be able to do a lot of self-care around that, Make sure that you do the things that would normally nourish you. you know, for some people, that's maybe a nice hot bath with Epsom salts. If you can take a walk in the neighborhood, if you love nature, uh, that can be really important. Right. Um, you just got to keep doing some of these basic things. You also might find that you're more disoriented. It's harder to track things. You might find that there are emotions coming up, like anger, like sadness. Um, one of the main models that uh, I generally use in, in bereavement work is something called the grief wheel. And it's basically a visual that sort of looks at everything in this sort of cyclical manner. And so basically we're on this trajectory, something happens. In the case of the grief wheel, I think it's talking more often about uh, a, a loved one dies or a loved one gets sick and dies, but I think it can be applied to this as well. We have this an event or an experience that happens that in a sense disintegrates us. It, it takes this path that we're on and kind of scatters the pieces everywhere because it's unpredictable and it's now throwing us off. Like, oh, I have only two more months of uh, savings and then I'll have no money. What am I gonna do? And if I don't, my job doesn't start for another four months, I uh, help. And so, even something like that is very disorienting and we have to figure out not only how to adapt but care for ourselves at the same time and then you know usually in that sort of grief cycle there is a point where as we're sort of, things are kind of falling apart a little bit there are any number of emotions that might come up even throughout all, in a single day and so we then have to just as we've been talking about in the other podcasts of we care for our physical bodies to to sort of work with um, this, this virus and work with infections to support us. Well, we do the same thing when we're willing to look at the fact that we grieve. 
And so if we know that, if we acknowledge that, if then when those emotions come up, we go, oh, this might be part of that process. I'm going to make sure I'm giving myself a lot of self-care, that maybe I do some journaling. Uh, I make sure I'm you know, not drinking too much or doing things that, that I think sometimes when we grieve, it's grab a drink or maybe take a smoke of something or whatever to kind of just chill it all out. And the, the problem is that that actually just dulls the process. It doesn't remove the process. Right. Um, and so it's actually better to feel those emotions, to go into them, to work with them. Uh, if you need, there's there are resources to talk through things and to talk about things because that's important as well to make sure you have community. But overall, it's this notion of if we are willing to step into it and look at it and work with the pieces of it, then we do start to integrate back. We integrate this new experience. We find resilience. We find a way through it. And we continue moving forward. But now we've integrated that loss, that change, that transition into our body and into our into our being. And so the next time we experience that, we have those resources to navigate it a little bit differently and to go, oh, this is happening again. Okay, here's some of the things that I know I can do. And if I need to cry, I can cry. If I need to maybe have a day where I don't get out of bed and just watch reruns of you know a favorite TV show, okay. Um, but, but then at some point, it doesn't, that sitting in bed doesn't last for three weeks. It's you, you've like, oh, okay, now I need to get up and move and, and get some energy going and, um, and find some way through that. So it's about building that resilience. Yeah, I just, um, wow, that was, that was great. I'm thinking there was a people, he's, he's a, if you're a little older, you remember Ken Kesey. He was one of the Mary pranksters. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he had quite a practice of, uh, teaching meditation later in his life and, uh, and he was he was always kind of a wise guy, but he he said, you know, there's the the basics of meditation are this: you sit down, you shut up, and you breathe. And <laughs> yeah, it's so simple, and, and and it's very portable. That's the thing that I love about meditation is that you can do it anywhere. You don't need to be in a special room or in a you know a shrine space or a chapel or where or where you can do it in your car. You could do it at the kitchen table. Um, um, so I think that that's important yeah. and it's especially helpful too, when you, if you were going out and doing shopping, for example, you know, the, the supermarkets are bizarre now it's this strange ritual, but you could bring, instead of being anxious or kind of getting panicked about it, like that's a great place to do meditation and just, just follow your breath. And if you feel like, oh my God, there's out of, they're out of newspaper, they're out of, or not newspaper, but like, like the the store I go to, there's still no toilet paper. And so instead of, ah, oh, no, there's no toilet paper, just like, okay, all right, there's no toilet paper. I can't do anything about that right now. I have to think up other solutions and I'll figure out a way through it. It's, I mean, put it honestly, <laughs> I mean, when we were living in caves, we didn't have toilet paper. So I think we have managed not having toilet paper in our lives. Yeah, and I just, at some point. I just also wanted to, I mean, I had the pleasure of meeting in uh, multiple times when she was still alive, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and uh, just I'd, I'd, oh, I'd cool. end up in conferences and retreats and things where she'd be either present or one of the teachers. And um, uh, 
And she would, she never, you know, she would get a little upset. She never meant the stages of grief and dying, you know, that she laid out in grief and dying. Um, the, yes. the book she wrote, uh, she never meant them to be hierarchical. She always considered it a sort no. of cycle that there are many different faces yes. and they're all part of grief. And, uh, and it's not important. I think that we name it grief. It's just, it's useful, I think for me, but, um, but just what you're saying, you know, that the, especially, you know, if you drug or drink and just numb all those feelings, then they get kind of stuck. And so even though they might not be all of them pleasant, allowing yourself to feel them is what it takes to keep them moving. So they don't become crystallized and, and they move Exactly. Well, and thank you for that reminder. Like, yes, she, her intention was never that it be interpreted linear, linearly. Right. Um, but what I have seen is that, and, and maybe this is just the, the approach in Western medicine, I don't know, but the way I've seen it adapted or how it's been adapted or how also how it's been taught too, because I think it gets taught to a lot of physicians, nurses, social workers, and the people teaching it don't necessarily understand a lot of grief theory. Right. It's, oh, we, this is the one that everyone uses. So we'll just use that. And it's just five stages. And you're going to do this, 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 and this, and this, and then it's going to be done. And because it's just one more thing I got to teach and it's, it's, there's not a lot of time taken. And yeah. so her, why I veer away from her model, not because it isn't a good model, but because it has been so, so kind of um, poorly adapted to it be so. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, um, uh, as a funny story, a, a friend of mine who's also uh, 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 taught me a lot, uh, was a, a mentor of mine when I was starting and learning about bereavement work. And she was called to uh, a business, an office uh, that she had gone to a few times over the years. They would call her uh, if, if, a, if a member of that office had died or was sick or was having that kind of situation they knew her from the community and they would bring her in to sort of support the office team. And so this one time, one of their office mates had died from cancer and they had said, Oh, Hey, Kim, would you be willing to come and just do a support group for, for the team? And she's like, sure. And so she arrived. And when she arrived, one of the other people that she knew uh, greeted her and was like, Oh yeah, you know what? I'm sure they're going to be fine. I totally Kubler Ross them, so I think they're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and Kim was like, "Wait, did you just use that as a verb? Um, I am very concerned what you just might have just done because, again, it's like, oh, don't worry, you're going to go through these stages and you'll get to acceptance, and you'll be fine. Yeah, and we'll all and, go with pizza and beer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then and and here's what the end end difficulty is is that people have that then in their mind and they maybe do get to a place of acceptance. And then maybe one or two years later, another event happens that triggers that old loss and they have all these emotions and feelings coming up about that other loss. And they go, what? I thought I was done with this. I thought I was in acceptance and it was all fine. And now I got to deal with this again. And so you have, it, it makes for such confusion yeah. and upset and, and difficulty. And it's like, it didn't have to be that way. Um, but I think we, we are Western minds or maybe just human minds. We like our solution 
and we want it done. I did it. I got that done and I wrapped up that grief and I never got to do it again. Check, check, check and, that one off. Yeah. Well, I, exactly. I just, I think this is really useful because the, uh, whether we want to admit it or talk about it or whatever, uh, if you're not having feelings in the midst of all this that's going on, you're either stoned all the time or you're not human. That's kind of my take on it. So, um, feelings, emotions, all the different pieces of this that are kind of out of our control, uh, they're just so much a part of the package right now. And so I'm, I'm just grateful for you kind of offering up some ways to, to manage this. Sure. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, there is a five-week course that's actually starting today. Um, so people might not be able to take it, but I have a grief course oh, wow. uh, that I put together um, through a Philosophical Research Society out here in Los Angeles, so prs.org. Um, but we'll offer it again, I'm sure, so um, look out for that. But um, there's definitely resources out there. And, um, and well, yeah. Could, could I someone just, come in in the middle of that, or do they have to wait for the next cycle? I don't know. Um, it's possible. I think you can potentially sign up after it started, yeah. Uh, you might have to, it's, it's, uh, it's a class every week, so it'll run for five weeks. So yeah, if you hear this in the next, today is the 10th of April. So, you know, if you listen to this in the next week or so and uh, aren't so inspired. Okay. We'll uh, make sure we yeah. put the link on the, on the page that the, the post that accompanies this podcast will have the link to that on it. Okay, cool. Okay. Well, thank you, Carlisle. And just you and your family and everybody be, be well. Stay healthy. Same with yours. Thanks. Dr. Oh, yeah. So this is uh, the Organic MD podcast. Uh, we're looking for uh, what you're interested in hearing about. So please email us if you have topics you want us to uh, to talk about. And uh, But if you leave it to us, I'm sure we'll come up with things that you'll find quite interesting. So just, uh, just subscribe to the podcast so you get notified when we put up a new one. Okay. Thanks. All, all of our love to you, Carlisle, and to yours. Right back at you. Bye-bye.